Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Did you have a nice weekend? Maybe you have this whole week off. A lot of people I've come to discover do. Um, Of course, those of us at WCPT, we are going to be here day in, day out, anytime you need us. Uh, And then, of course, there are the people who um, work so that the rest of us can enjoy our holidays. The police, the fire, the people who work at our hospitals and many more. Uh, We really appreciate you. You know, for many years, I was one of those people. I um, worked at a hospital, and um, even when I came to Chicago and worked in television news, I worked weekends for quite a while. And it always bothered me (laughs) that it, it felt like the rest of the world ignored the people who had to work when everybody else was off. So that's why I always try to single them out and say a special thank you, whether you um, are going to be working over the weekend in retail or whether you are doing uh, a service industry, keeping the restaurants open or, you know, helping us when it comes to medical care or emergency care. There's a lot of people who keep our lives going and not everybody gets weekends off and not everybody gets holidays off. So those of us who do, should really appreciate the time, appreciate our families, and appreciate the people who continue to go to work. Okay. Thanks for joining me this Monday, November 21st. It is um, an exciting political day locally. Alderman Ray Lopez was one of the very first people to say that he was going to challenge Lori Lightfoot. He was, uh, there's a now, I think... What's the last count? Nine people in the mayor's race. Well, and today's the day to file petitions, file all your signatures. Raymond Lopez is not going to be one of those people, even though he has some uh, 26,000 signatures. I think it takes 12.5 thousand signatures to get on the ballot. Everybody always gets more just in case they lose some. He's got the signatures, but he's decided not to run for mayor. One of the very first people in the race is now out of the race. Here is what he said in a statement that he put out today explaining his reasoning. For the good of the city is to ensure that Lori Lightfoot is defeated and denied a second term. The odds of her getting reelected grow with every candidate that enters this race. Let me uh, read you his statement in full. After spending months traveling the city and collecting nearly 26,000 signatures for my mayoral bid, I have decided against running for mayor. With every new challenger that enters the race, the odds of Lori Lightfoot making it into a runoff, possibly even winning re-election, grows. Chicago has survived many things over its existence, but it will not survive another four years with this mayor chasing headlines to cover up her nonstop bouncing from bad decision to bad decision. This race has never been about me or any political ambition. It has always been about standing up for the city I love, saving it from the protest vote mayor. In order to help voters choose from an error field, 
I'm putting the city first and removing myself from contention. I do know, however, that this campaign has given me an extraordinary opportunity to see many new neighborhoods from a very different lens. This last several months have produced new friendships, new ideas, and a renewed love and excitement for the ward I call home. Today, I announce my intention to seek a third term as alderman of the 15th Ward. My residents overwhelmingly supported me in the past and did so again by coming together quickly to get the necessary signatures to file today. I remain committed to the ideals and proposals I shared during the past several months. As a returning alderman, I look forward to helping guide our city council further into the 21st century, welcoming a potentially record-setting number of new members and assisting a new mayor that prioritizes faith, family, opportunity, and security in every community. I must thank the thousands of people across Chicago who supported me, believed in me, and helped me in this moment. This was not an easy decision. It is emotional and difficult for all of us. However, the pain of seeing Lightfoot continue politically would be far worse. Yowza. People withdraw from a race for a lot of reasons. But withdrawing from the race because the person you want to make sure the person you challenged in the first place loses next time around? <laughs> that's um that's not your typical reason for withdrawing from the mayor's race. But I think that um I really enjoy having Ray Lopez in the city council. I know a lot of people say he's a he's a thorn in everybody's side, but you know what? Sometimes he says the things that need saying that a lot of people don't want to stand up and say. I hope he um, wins another term in the city council. I will be glad to continue talking to him when he does. Another question. Uh, today is the first day to file your signatures, okay, whether you're running for Alder or whether you're running for mayor. So what do you think Ed Burke's going to do? They're not talking. Um, There have been, according to Shia Kapos, people have been gathering signatures for him. But those same people are also getting signatures for Paul Reyes and Miriam Gutierrez. Those are both Ed Burke allies. So they're kind of hedging their bets. You know, if uh, Burke wants to uh, run for re-election, he'll have the signatures. If he decides to anoint a successor, well, hopefully that successor will have the signatures as well. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Um, Shia Kapos also says uh, that some of uh, Alderman Ed Burke's friends and allies are um, circulating another petition uh, for another candidate. Chewy Garcia and Ed Burke and Chewy Garcia do not like each other. Supposedly, according to what Shia Kapos wrote, writes, um, there, um, for people who might be hesitant to sign a petition for Ed Burke or anybody who works with him because of his myriad legal troubles, 
They're using the Chewy Garcia petition as a way to just get people to talk to them and sign their names. And, oh, you signed that one. Could you sign these others, too? The belief, then, is that the uh, Chewy Garcia petitions will never see the light of day. Ah, Chicago politics. It is just refreshing, isn't it? What else is going on that we need to talk about right here, right now? (sighs) Donald Trump is back on Twitter. Even though Elon Musk said nobody was going to be reinstated until this, uh, what did he call it, a moderation council was formed. They're going to consider, you know, they're going to be the arbiters of uh, who's on, who's off. But... um, A few days ago, you might have seen this. I don't follow Elon Musk, but somebody retweeted a tweet of his. He conducted a poll, a Twitter poll. Should I should Donald Trump be back on Twitter? And the person who retweeted it to me said, you know, knowing Elon Musk, he's going to make a decision based on these poll results. So please, please, everybody who possibly can answer this poll. I, of course, answered the poll with a no. And as soon as you do one of those Twitter polls, it it flips to a different screen so you can see how the vote is going. 45% of the people responding were voting no. 55% of those responding were saying yes. That was at the moment in time when I answered the poll. And... um. Elon Musk put out a tweet saying that the people have spoken. Donald Trump is restored to Twitter. Now, it'll be interesting to see how Donald Trump embraces this, because clearly Twitter was one of his major mouthpieces before. But when it was unclear whether or not he was going to be restored to Twitter, he went on at great length to say that, Even if they offered it, he wasn't going to take it because, you know, he's created Truth Social and Truth Social is um, Truth Social is where everybody should be. And that's what he's using to get his messages out. How long? (laughs) How long is that going to last? Nobody uh, is saying uh, when they restore Trump. Do all of his followers that he had before automatically get restored as well? Or does he have to start from scratch? Somehow I suspect that he is going to, um, if he chooses to reactivate, he is be he is going to be given an account that has all of the followers it had the first time around. Elon Musk, um, very clearly a far-right conservative when he's not just completely bat-poop crazy. So my guess is that, um, yeah, some people are saying, you know, you should just get in and block him or just don't follow him. What I do if there's somebody on Twitter who I really don't care for and don't want to hear from him, I don't follow that person. And if somebody I do follow retweets that the person I don't want to hear from more than once or twice, I will then unfollow the person who's retweeting. So if people start 
retweeting Donald Trump, I'm just going to start unfollowing their accounts. Problem solved. Um, some other stuff going on. There's some stuff going on. Uh, Lori Lightfoot and Pete Buttigieg were out at O'Hare. Adam Kinzinger was talking to Jake Tapper. And there's some real, apparently pretty serious Supreme Court controversy. Let's take a break. We'll get to all that right after this. WCPT 820. Mayor Lori Lightfoot and uh, Department of Transportation Secretary, Cabinet Member Pete Buttigieg were out at O'Hare today. There has been an environmental study that has signed off on this, so they were very pleased to be out there to announce that there were going to be some real serious infrastructure improvements out at O'Hare, a lot of them having to do with uh, Terminal 2. Uh, Terminal 2 is uh, going to be completely redone. Here's what uh, a, a written statement that was issued today says that um, concourses one and two and the O'Hare Global Terminal are going to be part of this new creation. Um, I don't know. It just sounds like it sounds like it's going to be great when it's over, but we're going to have to live through more construction out at O'Hare. So Terminal 2 is going to be replaced by something called O'Hare Global Terminal. I don't know if you've been out to O'Hare recently, but the quote-unquote international terminal, Terminal 5, where you have to kind of drive a different way to get there, they've started moving airlines out there. Um, so next time you're flying, double-check. My <laughs> my daughter went to pick somebody at the airport, pick somebody up at the airport a week ago, and she drove to the wrong terminal because she went to where that airline used to be. And uh, then she had to backtrack to Terminal 5. So they're moving things around out there. So uh, Terminal 2 is going to be Global Terminal. And um, O'Hare is uh, supposed to be bigger and better. (laughs) Of course, they're not going to say it's going to be smaller and worse. It is going to be bigger and better when they are finished with um, all of this today. So everybody was out there taking a victory lap. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot uh, talked about how the Federal Aviation Administration has also signed off on this deal, given their approval. Listen to this. As Commissioner Reed previewed for you, we are here today to celebrate a key milestone in our $12 billion O'Hare 21 Capital Improvement Program. Following a thorough, multi-year environmental review, the FAA has officially approved our plan for new construction. This approval was essential for us to move forward on our next big phase of modernizing this airport. And we are grateful to the FAA for their approval of this plan, uh, the airport's terminal area plan. This work will replace, as uh, the commissioner said, this very terminal that we're in, the oldest facility here at O'Hare, transforming it into the O'Hare Global uh, Terminal. The first projects will be completed will be the construction of two new satellite concourses that will provide approximately 1.3 million feet of gate and amenity space, dramatically expanding the airport's ability to accommodate aircrafts of all sizes. This is a big deal for us. Let's just hope 
It is well organized. I don't know if you had the misfortune of flying into LaGuardia when it was under construction seemingly forever. It was a nightmare. It was literally you couldn't get there from here. You know, you'd pull up and there would be all these concrete barriers and the place you used to go in was closed off. So where do you go in? Ah, it was anybody's guess. Um, LaGuardia looks beautiful right now, though I will say, I guess they must have expanded it because the last couple times I've flown in there, you have to walk for what feels like a good two miles to get from your gate where you get off the plane to baggage claim. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know how somebody who is um, mobility impaired is going to do it unless they have somebody to push a wheelchair or get some of those motorized carts because it is a very long walk. So my hope is that uh, they will look at the um, problems that were created at LaGuardia and that they will make arrangements for people at O'Hare to not get tied up in traffic, to not be able to figure out where they need to go. Pete Buttigieg actually talked a little bit about that when he said the Department of Transportation is going to work with the aviation folks to make sure that service continues during this, especially this now, this travel season where, you know, all kinds of people are back to flying. Listen to Pete Buttigieg. We have been doing everything we can to make sure air travel runs smoothly as we go into the Thanksgiving and Christmas and other winter holidays. We are delighted that demand is returning like nobody thought possible, with more and more passengers having the income and the desire to take to the skies. We also know that 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 means airlines have to continue taking steps to address the challenges of servicing those tickets that they sell. That's why we put up an airline customer service dashboard to make sure that before you buy a ticket, you can see, airline by airline, how you will be treated in the event of a cancellation or disruption, uh, from hotels and meal vouchers to to free rebooking. I want to make sure passengers know that if you are canceled or significantly delayed, you are required to receive a full refund if you ask for one. And if you have trouble getting one, let us know, because we have helped get hundreds of thousands of passengers, hundreds of millions of dollars in refunds just in the last couple of years alone. Let's hope so. Let's hope so, Pete. Uh, In other news, over the weekend, it was reported, remember how there was that leak of the Roe v. Wade decision in February months before it was announced, and John Roberts, the chief justice, was like, oh, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Well, um, Justice Alito wrote that opinion, and he is now being accused by somebody who claims to be in the know, a former a reverend who uh, worked with uh, people who were close to Alito. He's being accused of actually leaking a decision that was coming down in 2014. He wanted to let the uh, Hobby Lobby people know that uh, a decision on contraception, there was a big controversy over whether Hobby Lobby, which you should never shop there because they're just the worst sort of evangelicals. They didn't want to have to pay contraception for any of their employees and as part of their health care. And Alito apparently told the, f- the family that owns Hobby Lobby, oh, you're getting a good decision. Yeah, they knew about it ahead of time. Which um, And a lot of people in the Senate and the Congress are really furious, and they basically have told John Roberts that if he doesn't start investigating this and create a code of ethics that they have to live by, that Congress is going to do it for him. 
One last thing I want to squeeze in real quick. Adam Kinzinger was on with Jake Tapper on CNN talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She, you know, has said that when they're in charge, they're going to pull funds for Ukraine. I need to share this with you before we wrap this up. Listen to Adam. Before the election, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican of Georgia, pledged that, quote, not another penny will go to Ukraine under a Republican-led Congress. What is your response to her And how worried are you that with this narrow majority, uh, she is going to be newly empowered in the Republican House? Well, first off, she will be newly empowered. And and the fact that she's supporting Kevin McCarthy means that he's made a lot of promises to her. Just trust me, that's how this business works. In terms of the commitment to Ukraine, I mean, she even posted a video the other day of some wounded Ukrainian soldiers and said basically they were being abused and used. Um, Look, when you're her... She's a millionaire. You've never sacrificed for a thing in your life. You've never served anything but yourself and your own goals. I can't expect her to understand what it means to actually defend democracy physically. Um, she can she can pretend like she knows all she wants. She obviously doesn't. So I think it's going to be a tough fight for Ukraine. I think there's still strong bipartisan support. But I would not be surprised if Kevin McCarthy has to cut deals with Democrats, which is something he needs to keep in mind, because he's not going to get 218 votes for everything he wants to pass, including government funding. Uh, because he's got people that will never vote yes on anything. I've done this business for a while, and I'll tell you, they're just the, the hope yes, vote no caucus. They vote no on everything, or now they're only going to vote for the most conservative stuff. Yep. It's going to be interesting. This week, we're going to take these days before Thanksgiving. In addition to politics and news, we're going to be looking at climate and recycling and how we can take care of our planet better. We're going to get started with that right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said, we are going to be taking a look at ways that we can be better citizens of the planet this week. Um, I know it's a big topic. We've spent some time discussing it before, but it's always something that's worth revisiting. Climate change, recycling um, how to be gentler with our environment, how to pass along a world to our grandkids that isn't on fire. <laughs> when um, when we um, started to plan this week, there were some books that I was looking at. And um, one of the books is called Diet for a Changing Climate. Uh, Christy Mahali and Sue Heavenrich. It is about how we can change our diet to um, improve the climate. Christy Mahali joins us now, uh, one of the authors of this book. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I have to get right to the heart of this. I'm, I'm 100% ready to eat better, to preserve planet Earth, but I... I will never, I will never eat insects. I can't do it, Christy. <laughs> I, I, I just, the thought of it. I used to travel to Mexico a lot when my kids were little. Sure. And there was this one sort of open market we used to go to. And at the entrance to the market was always somebody sitting there with a big basket of barbecued crickets. Yes, and yummy. Tabellini, right? Oh, I I just would look at it, <laughs> and I would walk on by. 
Yeah. Talk to me about this. Come on. Well, this is not an unusual uh, reaction, right? Which was one of the reasons that Sue and I got into writing the book. And it's a book for teenagers, really. It's a, it's a high school level. So it's at my level. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, they, they classify it as YA. So um, our idea was that kids and teenagers would be a little more open um, and maybe even uh, it would be appealing to them, the subversive nature of uh, going for these, um, these eating these things that we don't necessarily think of as food in our culture. So there's definitely an ick factor with the bugs. Um, but... Um, there's an easy way if you really feel like motivated, like I actually do want to try this, um, you know, they grind up crickets into a powder and it's like flour and you can use cricket flour or cricket powder in baking. And, uh, and then you are uh, getting that nutritious cricket protein into your diet and um, <sighs> you don't even know it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. But we do. Um, we start with crickets. We call crickets the gateway bug. Oh, oh yeah. As as one does, you know. Because yeah. if you're thinking, I think today I'll eat an insect, why not start with crickets? <laughs> what are some of the other? I, and I know, I mean, I'm, we're, I'm laughing here, but I do know that this is actually a recommendation from the United Nations that we should exactly. all be eating more bugs um, what other bugs should we consider trying? Well, um, the United Nations came to the recommendation for some good reasons. Um, and, you know, insects are eaten around the world as part of people's, you know, normal diet. So for many people, it's not a, a weird or revolutionary thing to do. But they're good because it requires so many less resources to raise insects uh, for the same amount of protein. And it's produces a lot less carbon dioxide. So those are two reasons why it's good to eat insects. And the third is that the United Nations is recommending it because they're so cheap and plentiful that you can actually take a bite out of world hunger um, if there's a lot more use of insects as a food source. So, um, you know, there's a wide range. I have actually eaten a roasted Japanese beetle, and it was, you know, Sue roasted it for me, um, but the the trick was the hot sauce with it. So, I mean, as long as you, you know, confirm that these things are edible, um, you know, you can eat them. People eat tarantulas. I'm not going to recommend that as a place oh. to start. Oh. Yeah, you know, okay. I know, I know. Um, but there's also people eat, uh, you know, grubs and mealworms. Uh, it depends on how they are prepared. The book actually includes recipes and you, you want to cook these things and you want to season them. And, yeah, you know, if you want to disguise them so you don't know what you're eating, that's fine, too. We have um, chocolate chip cookies with crickets in them. And the crickets are, like, all chopped up so that they're, they're honestly just kind of like nuts. You don't know what you're eating. Um, you don't have to, like, eat them full body with the tentacles showing. Uh, there, are, there are other ways to, uh, to prepare them all. Well, you know, you make a good point because I think, I think that's the part that really creeps me out is mm -hmm. eating the totality of a creature. Like, if you could cut them open and maybe pull out little cricket steaks, 
Um, and then, you know, serve me a plate that's, these are cricket steaks. I sure. think that that would go a long way for me. Uh-huh. Of, uh, exactly, fillets. Uh, that, would go, that would get around the ick factor, but that's part of the sure. ick factor. I mean, the, the heads and the wings and the legs yeah. and the... Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly understand that, and, and I'm not immune to it either. Um, but one of the things we point out in the book is that, you know, a big part of this is cultural. Why is it revolting? Because it's cultural. These are things you're not supposed to eat. And we talk about lobsters. Um, you know, lobsters, gourmet treat, right? Expensive, fine restaurant dining. But 200 years ago, People thought those things were just as revolting as we think um, eating a cricket is today. So we actually we found that people called them like the cockroaches of the ocean. Um, (laughs) Right. And they were um, they were considered not good for food. They were ground up to use as fertilizer in, in gardens and fields. And they were also fed to pigs and to prisoners. So, like, this is back in the day before prisoners' rights, and they were feeding this stuff that nobody thought was good food to prisoners. Um, so, um, there you go. Things have changed. I might Things be changed. misremembering this, but I, I, could, I can remember my parents, from the time I was real little, they would spend a week or two every year in Florida And I remember after I was an adult talking to my mom and she would tell me how when they first started going to Florida, crab legs, it was the same thing. It was like a it was like nobody ate them. And, you know, that was always something my mom loved. And she said that, you know, she used to go down there and be able to go to a restaurant and order like pounds of crab legs for just pennies on the dollar because Uh it wasn't considered anything that was um attractive Um, quick question if where do you buy bugs oh i want to eat crickets you know you don't i'm not going to find them at kroger's i don't think so that is an excellent question and it is important to buy crickets that have been raised for human consumption can't go to the pet food store (laughs) right there's actually uh, cricket farms that raise them for pets and we don't want to eat those necessarily but there are increasing numbers of people raising crickets on cricket farms for human consumption honestly you know you go online you can find them but there are companies that specialize in in uh, selling different insect products uh, for people to eat. Sometimes they're like in little snack bags with flavored, like, you know, nacho flavored cricket crunches and things like that. You can also uh, find the cricket powder or cricket flour that I was talking about earlier. But yeah, it's amazing what you can find out there. The book also includes how to catch your own if you're really into that. Oh, please. You know. What's all that in your backyard, Joan? Oh, those are my cricket traps. We're going to have a feast tonight. <laughs> but honestly, we we wanted to spread the word in a fun way, which is what you're doing, um, because it's an important thing to think about. You know, how yeah. our diet affects our environment is, well, uh, is worth giving some thought to. So, yeah. Exactly. You're not injuring the planet. You're taking something that's in excess supply. And if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but insects provide a whole lot of protein and not a lot of fat. I mean, it's dietarily, it's a win-win. 
They are a superfood. They are uh, highly nutritious, lots of good minerals and vitamins, and um, yeah, who knew, right? Um, but yeah, so I mean, we do we do save insects. Insects. The idea of what they call entomophagy, eating insects, was what got me into writing the book. But we also included easier ways to get away from uh, farm food um, with uh, eating wild plants and weeds and uh, invasive yes. species. Right. I wanna. I wanna talk to you. Yes. If you don't want to, if you don't want to add insects to your diet, um, you can add weeds and uh, invasive animals. Uh, Chris, well, but Chrissy what could be I, cooler? Let's, yeah, let's 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 let let's let everybody's stomach. We're going to take a break. Let your stomach settle. Take some deep breaths. Christy Mahali and I will be back again. Uh, the book. For those of you who are uh, interested, it's Diet for a Changing Climate. She wrote it with Sue Heavenrich. We're going to be back with weeds and invasive animals right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. According to uh, Christy Mahali and Sue Heavenrich's book, Diet for a Changing Climate, 15 to 28% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from food production. A lot of that through industrial farming and from equipment or livestock. So what do we do about that? Well, one of the things we can do is change the way we eat. Um, and one of those, and I have to say, Christy, in all honesty, I can remember when we're talking about, uh, you know, I teased this by saying, you know, you could eat weeds. Well, I can remember going to my grandmother's house and we would go out in the backyard and we would uh, pluck, we would pull the greens from the dandelions and right. we and we would bring them in. She'd wash them and she'd make a big salad with it. There's a story. I I don't know if it's completely true, but supposedly when Martha Stewart was in prison, she would walk the um, outdoor areas and she would collect like dandelion greens to make a fresh green salad because you know her complaint was that there wasn't much fresh food available at that women's prison. So this is. Maybe because I came from an Italian family and, you know, my, mm-hmm. they, we also grew some of it. We always had gardens. We grew some of our own food. It didn't seem so weird to me, um, right. to pick what many people consider weeds and then bring them in and eat them. What other exactly. weeds can you recommend? Well, um, and, and, and dandelions actually were brought over here by the early settlers, um, because they were a food source and traditionally eaten over in England, and they weren't sure what kind of food they were going to find over here. So that is all the dandelions that grow all over North America come from Europe. Um, other ones, um, another one that actually was imported, uh, is garlic mustard. Um, purslane is a little, um, succulent green uh, plant that uh, we have a recipe from Martha Washington who who put uh, who prepared purslane for George back in the day and um, and it is some of these uh, greens are more delicate and more difficult to harvest by machine and that's one reason why they just fell out of favor and they aren't uh, cultivated as much anymore for 
um, for food. Um, we also uh, looked at some interesting invasive plants like the the vine kudzu, which is like taking over the south. Um, this this incredibly fast growing vine can suffocate trees and just like um, cover buildings in a, in a very short period of time, um, and and it's very difficult to control. But if everyone started eating it, it's quite edible. The leaves are, uh, you know, tasty and good to eat. Um, you know, that is one potential solution to the uh, kudzu invasion uh, in the American I never world. knew. I knew that there was an invasion of kudzu in the South. I never knew it was edible. Well, there you go. Huh. Yeah, yeah, we have a, a recipe, I believe, in, in case you're interested. <laughs> of course you do. Um, one other way that we can feed ourselves and not do excessive harm to the planet is by eating things, particularly animals, that we already have either too many of or animals that are uh, causing trouble in uh, in our homes or our communities or in our ecosystems. Some of these invasive animals are iguanas, nutria, wild hogs. Where, where are wild hogs? I mean, I've never. Yeah, feral pigs, wild hogs, they're actually in, I think, 37 states at this point. Really? Um, the pigs came over from Europe, too. Um, the You know, in 15-whatever, uh, when the Spanish uh, came over and uh, explored Florida, they brought pigs. And um, the pigs, there were a few of them to begin, and they're really good at reproducing, and soon there were hundreds. And as they went around exploring, the pigs, like, wandered all over and started the uh, North American herd of feral pigs. Um, There were also other pigs that uh, actually, there's another, the wild boar, these were domestic pigs, which have now become feral. Also, uh, wild boars were imported from Europe to, uh, for the hunting, for hunting sport. Um, And they've interbred now. So, um, in places where there are large numbers of these, Texas is one, um, Arkansas is another, um, they can do a lot of damage. Uh, they have big tusks, and they dig and root for food, and they trample over things, and they're kind of a pain. So many states have made it quite easy to hunt her- feral pigs, and, um, you know, and in, you know they do meat inspection and all that and make sure they're good to eat, and um, they're sold, and um, that's a that's a good low impact source of uh, of bacon <laughs> of yummy meat. I have um, to say, though, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm I rattled off nutria like it was some exotic animal. Nutria is also known as a swamp rat. Yes, that's <clears throat> so, right. Um, and for those of you who find this fascinating and really want to try. Uh, to my Twitter account, I just posted a YouTube video about how you can catch your own swamp rats for um, uh, good eating, for good eating down the road. So, you, you know, go. knock yourself out. Okay, <laughs> um, what of these? Have you ever tried an iguana? 
I have not tried an iguana. I, they are not local to Vermont. Um, they are. Uh, they have invaded Florida, and again, again, Florida gets a lot of these, um, and a lot of the South actually. They're native to um, Central America and South America, and they're part of the traditional local cuisine in those places. And so, in Florida, they again are too numerous, and they're wiping out local plants and animals. There's a a local a Florida butterfly called the Miami Blue that's being um, that is now on the verge of, of uh, going extinct because the iguanas have eaten the plants that they huh. depend on. So people are trying to encourage more uh, catching and eating of wild uh, iguanas, and um, apparently they taste like chicken. So, uh. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I have had a crocodile taco. And okay. crocodile does taste a lot like chicken. It tastes like chicken that's kind of hard. It's a okay. lot chewier. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And I did have a kangaroo hamburger, though I will say the only way that was palatable was it had a lot of some kind of seasoned sauce because yeah. kangaroo is a little bit gamey, folks, in case okay. you're ever so inclined to uh, to give. You know, so if I can... If I can attempt these, what is it mentally that keeps me from making the leap to, say, uh, nutria or swamp rat? Is it just mm-hmm. mental? I, I, well, mental, cultural, right? Um, but, you know, it's all in the preparation. It's, you have to, it has to be well cooked. What if you went to a fancy restaurant and the chef, you know, brought it to you and in a, in a plate covered with a silver cover and, uh, you know, said it was the special of the day, you know. Maybe you wouldn't even ask what it was to see how it tasted. Well, again, again, we are going back to the insect thing. If we took the silver cover off and it was like a little fillet of something, I yeah. would be inclined to try it. But if it's laying there with a head and with wings <laughs> and with legs, I think, sure. I, you know, I am... Um, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty, pretty picky eater anyway. I yeah. mean, a lot of people. Yeah. I'm not your somebody who does it. I don't do snails and I don't do oysters and um, <clears throat> I think I'm, I think I'm pretty average in the fact that I find a lot of things that like that people eat yucky. Like I don't okay. eat sushi unless somebody cooks it. You put that uh-huh. sushi on the grill for you know 20 minutes mm-hmm. and I'm you good. know then serve it to me. But raw? No, I don't think so. Yeah, well, sushi is another example of something where our cultural tastes have changed. You know, before, you know, the 1940s, nobody in this country would eat raw fish. Um, and so now it has become a lot more accepted and in style. But, uh, you know, it's a matter of personal taste, right? Our, our, you know, our only, well, our main idea here is give it some thought and think mm-hmm. about you know, the impacts that your diet makes and how you might um, reduce that impact a little. Well, and Uh, I've also read that, you know, even if you're not quite ready to go the insect route, simply by eating less meat, uh, it's it's amazing what you can do for the climate. That's right. That's right. The amount of um, both resources required to raise cattle and uh, carbon emissions uh, because of cattle are, are, uh, are, are quite substantial. So we have a little chart in the book 
um, and it compares crickets and cows. So for one kilogram of growth of cow protein, uh, you produce 2,850 grams of carbon dioxide. For a cricket, same kilogram, two grams. So that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's why people think about it. And, and the same with people who suggest eat more, eat a plant-based diet. It just um, is gentler uh, to the earth. Um, the, the, the meat-based diet really can uh, have, have major impacts. So, yeah. Of all the recipes in the book, what's your favorite? Oh, my goodness. Well, I actually really like uh, a recipe that Sue uh, had had uh, had before in her family, and it's uh, dandelion flour. Um, dandy the the flowers, the blo- the actual blossoms, pancakes with dandelion uh, buds in them. It's actually really cool. <laughs> so you mean when you say buds, you mean like when they're before the, the flower. yellow flower comes out? No, it's the flowers. I, I just yellow meant flowers. it's not, it's not, yes, it's F-L-O-W-E-R flower, not the other oh. kind of flower. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds, okay, I could do that. I could start yeah. with that. Isn't that uh, fun? I, and, you yeah. know, uh, whether or not you are ready to go this radical, I think um, this holiday season to give the teenager in your life this book, Diet for a Changing Climate, I think at the very least, it is going to inspire some interesting conversation. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Christy, thank you so much for being here uh, and talking about this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. And when we come back, we're going to talk to a good friend of ours from the Chicago Tribune. Michael Hawthorne is the environmental and public health reporter We've got him up right after this. Jonas Pizzito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Pizzito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Michael Hawthorne. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. That's what happens when I don't talk for a while. Michael Hawthorne is the environmental and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. We talked with him a while back about something called PFAS. Uh, forever chemicals. Um, and I reached out to him because I saw in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago that Cal, the state of California was suing 3M and DuPont over, over, over these PFAS. The fact that, um, the state of California is alleging that they knew that they were dangerous for a while and continued to produce them. Made me realize that we haven't checked in with Michael for a while. Um, Michael, how are you? You don't hang it in there, Joan. It's always good to talk with you. Getting ready for a nice Thanksgiving? You know, I think so. It's going to be kind of low-key here for a change. And, uh, you know, hopefully everybody's healthy and and safe and uh, (laughs) wishing, wishing just the same to all your listeners. Um, Thank you for that. We appreciate that. When you saw this lawsuit filed by the state of California, well, first, you know what, Michael, we're assuming that everybody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Let's back up and tell the listeners what a PFAS are. Sure. So um, it's short for per and perfluoral alkyl chemicals, which is a, uh, quite a mouthful. So it's helpful to call them PFAS, which is the acronym, or even more to the point, forever chemicals. And so these are uh, chemicals that involve a bond between carbon and fluorine, 
you know, I like to go up and down the periodic table. Some of us don't remember that from, you know, from high school uh, <laughs> chemistry, but you know, that's, that's two, two elements on the periodic table. And it turns out that when those two are combined, carbon and fluorine, it's an almost unbreakable bond. And um, the original chemistry for this was devised right before World War II. It ended up becoming very uh, significant in the war effort. It was involved, these chemicals were involved in the uh, development of the first atomic weapons um, because they needed some material that could withstand the intense radioactivity. After World War II, people who worked on the Manhattan Project um, were hired by 3M and later the DuPont Company. They used these chemicals and decided, like a lot of other things that came out of World War II, hey, we can make money from these things, and uh, we're going to use these chemicals in consumer products. So nonstick pans under the Teflon brand or Scotchgard stain-resistant and uh, rain-resistant products. So essentially the whole era where we were being told that Better living through chemistry mm. is going to make everything in our lives more convenient. What they didn't tell us and what they didn't tell the government for decades is that these forever chemicals, these PFAS chemicals, don't go away. They build up in the environment. They build up in our bodies. And both 3M and DuPont knew this as early as the late 1950s. And all of this research was kept hidden, was kept secret was not shared with the government, even later when the Environmental Protection Agency was created in the 19, in 1970. And then later in the mid-70s, they developed a chemical of the nation's first chemical safety law. These PFAS chemicals were grandfathered. So uh, the U.S. EPA didn't know anything about these things, essentially. Meanwhile, they're being used in food packaging, in firefighting foam, in, once again, nonstick pans, rain-resistant clothing like the Gore-Tex brand, uh, stain master carpets. All these things in our daily lives have, okay. have had PFAS. I have an, uh, probably, uh, I have a very old <clears throat> Gore-Tex raincoat. Um, when, what do, let's say that it has PFAS. If I wear it, will they like rub off on my skin or is it just a question of when I'm ready to get rid of it that I have to be careful of how I dispose of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The dermal absorption is not as understood, as well understood as as uh, our ingestion through dust, for example. So, you know, this, this stuff does kind of like flake off, you know, when, when things when when products are worn. You know, carpets, for example, kids are down on the ground putting their, you know, hands to their face. And uh, these chemicals, some of them are more volatile than others, and they can get into household dust. The main, currently the main um, source of exposure, uh, according to scientists, is through drinking water. And as I reported earlier this year, eight out of every 10, or six out of every 10, sorry, people in Illinois get their drinking water from a water system where these chemicals have been detected. And just also this year, the US EPA declared there's essentially no safe level of exposure for the two most widely detected forever chemicals. And so we're getting these through our drinking water, like I said before, they build up in our blood. They take a long time to leave our bodies, even longer if we're constantly being exposed to them. 
And then we're also being exposed to them through food, microwave popcorn bags, fast food packages. That's I saw that you did an article. Oh, I don't know. When did this post? This was in September. And I saw the headline, Avoid Microwave Popcorn, Water-Resistant Makeup, Non-Stick Pans. Well, the pans I'd heard of before, but the microwave popcorn and the makeup, that was new to me. Talk about that in some detail. Well, in the late late 1960s, the DuPont Company created uh, chemicals or a a version of these chemicals that could be applied to what they call food contact paper. And even though they had studies that they provided the Food and Drug Administration that showed these things were killing laboratory rats or making them really sick, the FDA approved them anyway. And to this day, the FDA is way behind on regulating these products or these chemicals in various products that we encounter in our daily lives. So if you think about why you know, fast food packaging um, re- resists grease and oil or microwave popcorn bags, same thing. That's because they have these PFAS chemicals in- impregnated into the paper. And, and, and you know, think about, uh, you know, disposable dinner plates that don't get, you know, for a picnic or, a, a, you know, a potluck that don't get dirty or oily. That's because they have these chemicals in them. And then eventually, you know, they end up in the landfill, and and sometimes that landfill, um, you know, rain falls in the landfill. That stuff washes out, and it gets into our drinking water or gets into groundwater that supplies wells. And so, all over the country, whenever they've been looking, whenever scientists have looked for these chemicals, and the state of Illinois was far behind other states like Michigan, California, New York State and Ohio in actually testing for these chemicals. But when they look for them, they're finding them. And the really scary part of it is we still don't know where they're coming from. We have ideas. Like I identified in my investigation about 1,600 potential sources or suspected sources of PFAS chemicals just within the state of Illinois. Um, But as of now, Companies are not required to tell the public or even the regulators at either the federal or state level that they're using these chemicals. So these disposable plates, when you buy them at the store, it's not like there's something on there's a some word on the packaging material that gives you a heads up that these have uh, PFAS. That's correct. You don't have any idea of that. Now, in some of the the nonstick cookware You'll see, for example, they might it might see uh, it might say something like PFOA free or PTFE free, and those are acronyms for uh, two of the things that are either made with or are these one of these forever chemicals. Uh, PTFE is the is the technical term for what the original brand of Teflon was. Hmm. So, but if they say that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't contain other forever chemicals you know oftentimes what the chemical industry does not just with these chemicals but with flame retardants uh, all kinds of other things that we've uh, have, have been shown to be problematic to our health you know the chemical industry tweaks a couple of of molecules calls it brand new and then it's up to independent scientists to find out a that they're even in existence and then B, that they might cause harm. 
So our system's been reformed, supposedly, by Congress under something called the Frank Lawnberg Act a few years ago. But the EPA is still outmatched by the chemical industry. And this what they call regrettable substitution or like the carnival game whack-a-mole, you know, you knock one down and another one comes up. PFAS are an excellent example, a tragic example of how that has happened time and time again. Um, Michael, we need to take a break. But before we go to the commercial break, I just want to clarify one thing. So um, you talked about how um, oil resistant paper or food adjacent, like uh, like the bag for a microwave popcorn is a possible PFA target. Is the danger that the um, popcorn will rub up against this and you'll eat it, ingest it with the popcorn, or rather that you throw away the bag when you're done and it ends up in a landfill that ends up, you know, getting into the water supply? Is it either or both or neither? It's both. It's both. It's both. both. Yeah, I'm a real I'm a real ray of sunshine here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, this ray of sunshine by the name of Michael Hawthorne and I are going to take a break and we're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter Michael Hawthorne. We uh, were talking about uh, PFAS, forever chemicals that end up in our bodies with no way to get rid of them. Um, Michael, is there any technology that you know of that can be installed at a water treatment plant to remove these PFAS? Yes, uh, they're, they're fairly expensive, though, is the thing. And then there's some drawbacks to those as well. Um, you know, making every single person do this seems kind of, you know, impractical and too costly, especially, you know, for people on fixed incomes or uh, who, you know, who don't have a lot of money. Uh, but there are uh, there's an organization called uh, NSF International. Um, that's a nonprofit standards organization. And if you look on if you Google NSF International and PFAS, PFAS, they list a number of different products that you can buy for your home that can reduce these chemicals in your drinking water. The cheapest probably is, uh, you know, not not to make a brand endorsement, but it's been certified, and I own one myself. It's a company called Zero Water, and uh, it's one of those, you know, pitchers that you put in your refrigerator or a large container that you fill with water, and it not only filters out PFAS, but any of the other nasty things that we might, you know, that might pass through uh, drinking water treatment or might be lurking in our pipes, especially here in Chicago, like lead or, mm-hmm. or chromium or something like that. So uh, that's, you know, something to consider. But again, that's not the long-term solution. You know, we're supposed to be getting safe drinking water, and that's supposed to be part of why we pay our taxes to support our city infrastructure. Um, and the thing of it is, to get to your lawsuit question at the beginning of the of the hour, you, you talked about the California lawsuit, but it is worth noting that 3M, the 3M company and the DuPont company, uh, have already paid $2 million in legal settlements, including a large $850 million settlement in Minnesota, where 3M is headquartered. 
after they found, after the state of Minnesota found high levels of these PFAS chemicals throughout the area and the underground water that's connected to the St. Croix River and the Mississippi River outside oh of my. manufacturing facility in suburban Minneapolis, St. Paul. So, so 3M has already paid that amount of money. And then north of the Quad Cities, 3M owns a plant in Cordova, Illinois. It's on the Mississippi River. And just earlier this year, Attorney General Kwame Raoul sued 3M for contamination from that particular facility going into the Mississippi River. And then just within the last couple of weeks, the U.S. EPA reached a settlement with 3M where 3M has to test private water supplies within a 10-mile radius of this Cordova, Illinois facility. And in within a certain radius, I believe it's four miles, If they find these chemicals in the water, they have to provide some kind of drinking water treatment for those property owners. So, you know, again, everywhere they're looking for these things, these chemicals, they're finding them. The the real question that I have, and I haven't been able to get answered to my satisfaction, is the, the problems with these chemicals first started to come to light in the early 2000s. I actually started writing about them then. I was working in the state of Ohio as a reporter at that time. And the big problem at the time, the big focus at the time, was DuPont's Teflon factory on the Ohio River in South, in, in Virginia, but Southeast Ohio. And according, based on lawsuits, this is how this whole story started unfolding, that Lawyers for people who lived in surrounding communities near the DuPont Teflon plant uncovered all of these internal company documents, internal industry documents that showed that 3M and DuPont knew long ago that not only was this getting into our drinking water, but that it was not safe and that they knew it was causing problems. For example, there were pregnant women at the DuPont facility in Parkersburg, West Virginia, who gave birth to children who had birth defects that were identical to what uh, DuPont had found in animal studies. And yet they still made these chemicals. Right. And so it's taken time. Right. It took time for for the state of Minnesota, for example, to sue uh, DuPont, that, that, or I'm sorry, 3M, that case was not settled until 2017 to 2018. So we're talking 18 years from when this first started coming out, right? The state of Illinois just gets around to suing 3M in 2022 for a facility very similar to the one in Minnesota. So in the state of California, once again, picking up on this, there are cases in New Mexico and in Michigan and New York, um, near oftentimes facilities that have manufactured these products. But once again, the thing that hasn't really been coming out just yet is the companies that use these chemicals in their manufacturing process and then discharge them, for example, into the sewers. And then the sewage treatment agencies take the sludge and give it away to farmers and then spread it on farm fields And then those chemicals get transferred essentially to our food and the underground sources of water that 
supply water wells. So it's this really evil, vicious circle that's happening. This chemistry that was unleashed on us, you know, for good intentions during World War II, when when there was a huge effort to end the war and to win the war, has now left us with this legacy that that even people within 3M have said is worse than any other chemical catastrophe that we've encountered in a modern society. Unbelievable. Um, Speaking of lead in the water, uh, have you been monitoring the city of Chicago with their efforts to replace lead pipes? I I talk about it. Some of my listeners say I talk about it too much, but I'm just astounded that there are so many cities across this country that have seen this problem, identified this problem and gotten rid of the problem um, and and provided people with water filtration um, systems that can attach to a sink till they can get to this problem. And yet the city of Chicago seems paralyzed. Any idea what's going on there, Michael? Well, I haven't checked in with them in a while, but you might recall I had a story, oh gosh, this was maybe September of 2021, so so uh, not that long ago, where at that point, at least, the city had only replaced three of these lead service lines connecting water mains to homes. And that's out of an estimated 400,000. You know, Chicago has more of these lead service lines than any other city in America, largely because the city's plumbing code required them by law until the very day that Congress banned their use in 1986. So that means any single-family home, any two-flat in the city of Chicago that's older than 1976 likely has one of these service lines. And you're right, Joe, that, that, that the city is supposed to be taking care of this. And they've even gotten uh, money not only from the, the Biden infrastructure bills, but also earlier through uh, the community block grants that they get from the federal government. And yet, you know, I, I, this is a couple of months ago now, but I, you know, every time I see a, a department of water management crew in my neighborhood, when I'm walking my dog in the afternoon or in the morning, I see one of those crews and I ask them what they're doing, right? Hey, you, you're mm-hmm. the lead line or whatever. So you've dug up the street and every time they say, "Nah, we're not, we're, we're not ready for that yet," it's, 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 I'm with you. It boggles my mind. You're tearing up, you're tearing up the street in front of this person's home, and to replace, you know, who knows what, right? Maybe it's maybe it's a different pipe, but you're leaving the a, essentially a toxic, brain damaging metal in the ground, and not doing anything about it. So, so the 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 the, the idea that you know we could uh, knock out two problems at once. For example, replacing old leaky water mains, digging up streets at a time, which the city is still doing, and then also get rid of these lead straws, bringing water into our homes. You know, multiple mayors, going back to Mayor Daley, have failed to do that. And I always like to note is that you know, Mayor Lightfoot has talked a big game about doing something about this. But when it came time in Springfield to approve legislation that would require cities statewide to do something about this problem, Chicago gets an exemption until the city is largely done 
with replacing these water mains. So they legally, under state law, don't have to do a damn thing mm. in, until at least next year. And, and under federal law, currently, or under federal regulations, they also aren't required to do anything. Because the federal regulations, by all accounts, except for people at the City Department of Water Management, say that there's no problem. Essentially, you test uh. homes. You know, in Chicago, they test 50 homes. Think about how many people live in this city, Joe, right? 50 homes every three years. And guess where they test? Northwest side, southwest side, places owned by either employees of or retirees from the Department of Water Management. You can't make it up. Good God. Michael, it has been too long since we talked. I'm not going to wait this long again before I get you back on the radio. These conversations are just too important, and I love amplifying the work that you do for the Tribune. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Joan. Look forward to it. We are going to take a break. We are going to get back to politics and the midterm election right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is a lot going on today. Um, we um, have been telling you that uh, Alderman Ray Lopez has bowed out. He was one of the first, um, maybe just about the first person to throw his hat in the ring uh, to run for mayor. He said that uh, he didn't like what he saw with Lori Lightfoot. And that's kind of what he said today as he withdrew from the mayor's race. He said that he saw the list of candidates growing ever longer, and the longer that the list is, that means the better chance that there is, that there is going to be a runoff. And he said he did not want to put Lori Lightfoot in the position, frankly, of winning again, and that he felt that if she got into a runoff with one other candidate, it would strengthen her position. So uh, for the same reason he got in the mayor's race, he got out of the mayor's race. So who do we have left at this point? Um, well, we have Willie Wilson, who we are going to be. Let me check the schedule. I think I'm talking to him on next this coming Monday. I'm trying to every week talk to at least one of the candidates for mayor. Tomorrow in the 4.30 to 5 o'clock hour, we're going to be talking to um, Cam Buckner. You know him as a state representative, but he is one of the people who is running to be the next mayor, as is Alder Sophia King, who we spoke with recently. And a kind of an interesting story. Um, I can't remember whether this was in Cranes or Shia Kapos today, but there is an activist, a young activist by the name of Jamal Green, who is running. And uh, last time uh, Jamal Green wanted to run for mayor, Willie Wilson uh, challenged his uh, signatures. And, you know, it takes 12,500 signatures to get on the ballot to be a mayoral candidate. But um, people whose signatures aren't legible, people who may not be living in the right place to be eligible, people who... Um, their signatures don't match, um, stuff they've signed before. There's lots of reasons why, um, people's signatures can be thrown out. Sometimes, you know, you're only supposed to sign those petitions if you are 
a registered voter. But I've been told by those who gather signatures that sometimes people are embarrassed to admit that they are not a registered voter. So they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll sign your petition. Anyway, Jamal Green got knocked off the ballot last time around. This time around, uh, he has significantly, significantly upped the ante in his signature because he said, you know, I'm not going to get knocked off for that reason this time around. So we still have a Jamal Green, Cam, Bunkner, Cam Buckner, of course, Paul Vallis, uh, Paul in the news recently uh, because he's been getting some big campaign donations and uh, got a, um, a very um, high profile a Democratic campaign manager to come work with him. Uh, Sophia King of the Alder, who's running for mayor, also working with a big deal consultant, Peter Gian Greco. And uh, then we have um, Brandon Johnson, whom we've spoken with, who's getting a lot of union endorsements. Plus, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union has said that they will already be on the record as committing a million dollars to Brandon Johnson's campaign. Uh, Alderman Roderick Sawyer, who we spoke with recently, uh, son of former Mayor Eugene Sawyer, is in the race. And last but not least, uh, Jesus Chuy Garcia, the congressman, has entered the race. He um, has run for mayor before, not this last time around, but the time before that. And while people are saying that ordinarily somebody like Chewy would be a front runner, I mean, he has a lot of name recognition. He is very powerful and very well respected, particularly in the Hispanic Latino communities wields a lot of power behind the scenes, but he um, was late to the party. When he ran for mayor last time around, he got a lot of union endorsements. Well, a lot of those union endorsements have been tied up, have been tied up by Brandon Johnson. Um, a lot of people who would perhaps have supported the campaign of uh, Chewy Garcia the problem is when you get into the race late, a lot of the people who otherwise would have supported you have committed their support to other candidates. So, you know, there was um, early in the process, there was a lot of talk about Mike Quigley. Was Mike Quigley going to run? Um, and people thought, this is a guy. This is a guy who can take on Lori Lightfoot. He's very well respected he could get the endorsements. He could get the money. He could really make a difference. But he opted to stay in Congress. And that is where he shall remain. Um, Arnie Duncan also uh, flirted with a run for mayor and decided not to. Um, Alder Tom Tunney, who's retiring from representing the 44th Ward, was considered somebody who might be um, terrific when it comes to fundraising. He has opted not to run. And finally, we just got the news fairly recently that uh, former Governor Pat Quinn has decided not to run. Pat Quinn not saying who at this point he is going to endorse. But, you know, Pat Quinn endorsed Lori Lightfoot in her run for mayor. But he said that he became disillusioned with her because one of the things that she said while she was running for mayor was that she supported term limits for Chicago's mayor. 
And uh, once she got in office and was asked about term limits, she had kind of changed her mind. Uh, Didn't think that that was uh, so important anymore. That was an issue that she was backing off of. And Pat Quinn was very disillusioned at that. You know, she also campaigned by uh, supporting a fully elected school board, which we in the city of Chicago are going to be getting eventually. But she certainly didn't facilitate that process. So as with any of Chicago's mayor, mayors of the past, you know, you can point to a lot of the wonderful things that they've done for the city and maybe a few promises that went unmet, unkept. As we were just talking about with Michael Hawthorne, one of the big, I think what should be one of the biggest stories in in all of Chicago is this seemingly inability seeming inability to be able to replace the lead pipes, not only an inability to get the lead piping replaced, but getting people water filtration systems to take the lead out of their water until they can get their pipes replaced. Yes, there's a process that exists. If you get your water tested and it has lead, you can apply to the city for a filtration system. But it's it's a bureaucratic process. It involves too much. It Frankly, it involves too much effort on the part of homeowners. And if you rely on the city to do your testing and get you the filtration system, don't expect anything to happen in a timely manner. What they did in Detroit, in Newark, New Jersey, Detroit, Michigan, um, was it Denver? Or the a big city out in Colorado, I think it might have been Denver, who's, they've all been through this, they've all gotten it done. But in Detroit, rather than waiting for people to get their water tested and apply to the city to please be provided with a filtration system to take the lead out, the city of Detroit, they knew, where the, they knew where the lead pipes were. And they also knew that some of the zip codes where the lead pipes went were poor neighborhoods. These are not the kind of people who are going to do the research, generally speaking, to fill out the paperwork, to submit the requests online. They knew certain zip codes had a lot of lead pipes and not a lot of financial resources. They just automatically designated that anybody who lived in those zip codes would get a filtration system. Don't have to test your water. Don't have to fill out any paperwork. We know that there's a high likelihood you've got lead pipes and that you have water with lead in it. So we're just going to cut to the chase and get you a filtration system. City of Chicago can't seem to get its act together to even do that much. It's just stunning. It, it truly is stunning. Um, we need to take a break. When we come back, there's more about what, what went on at O'Hare earlier today that I want to share with you. And uh, we have other news to discuss right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So it is Monday, November 21st. As we said at the beginning of the broadcast, 
There is a lot going on today. We are going to talk about all the news and all the politics. Uh, This week, we are doing a special focus, though, I wanted to let you know, on the environment. We are talking about recycling, reusing, ways that at the up close and personal level that we can be a little gentler with our planet. Um, but uh, that is going to take place. So we're going to talk to a sustainability professor later today, and we have all kinds of really interesting folks to talk to you uh, tomorrow and Wednesday about what we can do to save the planet. Uh, right now, though, I would like to introduce one of our regular sponsored segments, uh, Union Strong. Mike Clemens is here. He is with the uh, IBEW. He used to be a local, but he got promoted to a big international post. So we're very lucky because he's very important now that he still talks to us. Mike, how are you? Good, Joan. I'm, I was having a little bit of phone difficulties. I think we got it straightened out. So uh, I'm good. Yay. Good. Glad, glad to hear it. So uh, the Workers' Rights Amendment passed here in the state of Illinois. That must feel like a tremendous success to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've spent uh, just, I mean, an inordinate amount of time and energy and effort to get that enshrined into the Constitution. And, um, you know, we're, we're very proud of the efforts of all of organized labor throughout the state of Illinois uh, to get that done. And uh, the only state uh, in the union to memorialize in our Constitution that workers have the right to collectively bargain for wages and benefits and working conditions. And you just put put it very simply and very clearly. There was a lot of misinformation about the Workers' Rights Amendment that um, was being circulated before people went to the polls um, for instance, that it was going to somehow raise people's taxes or it was going to drive small businesses um, um, bankrupt. Um, and yet when you talk to somebody and you say, well, you know, don't do you think workers should have the right to come together to lobby together for safe working conditions and better pay. You know, people are like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, it's like a no brainer. And I'm like, that is what the workers rights amendment says. And it also says as a further protection that we probably shouldn't pass any laws that would infringe or take away a person's right to do that. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes sense too. And yet, there were some people who didn't think that that's what it said. Um, as a union member, um, what kinds of questions did people ask you about the Workers' Rights Amendment? Um, yeah, I mean, we were getting questions from all over the place. Uh, you know, my taxes are going to go up $2,100 a year. That was a number I heard repeatedly because that was put out, you know, um, by opponents of the bill. I heard anything from, um, you know, uh, Sexual predators will be allowed to work in schools because you won't be able to pass their, they won't be able to set policy, you know, because the union will stop them from setting policy to prevent such things. And it was crazy and stuff we were hearing. But, you know, we would tell folks, is, look, we're not, this amendment changes nothing that already exists. We, we've had workers' rights in Illinois for decades and decades and decades. This simply took what we already have. It changed nothing. 
but it did take what we already have and enshrined it into the Constitution. And, you know, there's several reasons we were pushing for that. I mean, specifically, I mean, one instance when Governor Rauner uh, was governor, there was an effort. Uh, they were going around municipality by municipality, county to county, trying to get local municipalities to pass right-to-work um, legislation. Uh, the, the Lincolnshire actually did. Um, it was it went to court and was thrown out. Um, but, I mean, that's what we we're trying to prevent. We're not trying to make anything new or create anything new. In the state of Illinois, we've always had that right. It changed none of the rights that we've already had to collectively bargain. This just puts it in the Constitution, so if somebody in the future comes along and wants to try to uh, infringe upon those rights through legislation, locally, state, whatever, uh, it's now barred constitutionally from doing so. Yeah. Um, now that we've got the Workers' Rights Amendment passed here in the state of Illinois, something that I still think we should be exceedingly proud of, what's next for IBEW? What are the issues that you're concerned about and working on? Um, well, we, we have a lot of things going on legislatively, so uh, not just in the state of Illinois, but uh, what we were able to accomplish with these midterm elections um, we're really starting to focus some of our efforts up in the state of Michigan. And we've taken both the House and the Senate and the governorship up there. Now have a pro-labor Democrat majorities in all those chambers for the first time since the 1930s. And uh, there's a slew of anti-worker laws that were passed up there, getting rid of prevailing wage, uh, the enacted right to work. So we're working on uh, efforts to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, reverse uh, that legislation. State of Wisconsin is going to have a Supreme Court race here next year. Um, they have a four to three Republican majority on the courts now in Wisconsin. That's a seat we can flip and flip the courts up there. So they're pro labor uh, courts. Um, in the state of Illinois, we're always working. Um, we've got some more uh, energy legislation that we're looking at doing next session. Um, more electric vehicle legislation we're looking at doing next session. And uh, the um, energy legislation, what what is tell me one thing about that? Um, well, I mean, part of what we're really looking at is uh, some way to deal with some of the displaced workers that we're going to have from some of our uh, coal facilities, especially downstate. How do we transition those folks into other jobs? Um, mm -hmm. that somewhat equivalent pay, at least. Um, we're working on um, putting uh, stronger uh, wage protections in for uh, solar workers specifically, uh, workers on solar projects, so they're uh, more covered. Those workers are covered completely by the Prevailing Wage Act in Illinois, so we can ensure those jobs are good-paying jobs and benefits going into the future. Um, we're looking at there's some carbon capture projects in central and southern Illinois that are being looked at. Uh, hydrogen is a big thing, and we've talked before about that. There's a couple hydrogen hub projects that are looking to possibly locate within the state of Illinois that we're working on that might need some things done legislatively. Um, there's just there's so many things. And most of it's attributable to a lot of things that have happened federally with the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, uh, the CHIPS Act, 
um, you know, they've released a lot of funds. And then even what we've done here in the state of Illinois with the Reimagining Electric Vehicles Act, uh, CEJA, which passed a few years ago, the uh, Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, there's just a lot of tax credits, a lot of money to really where we can run a precipice in a gigantic transition, uh, you know, into renewables, into a green economy. And we're just trying to stay at the forefront of that to ensure those jobs are well-paid jobs with benefits as we transition in this new economy and, um, and a new way to generate energy. You talked about um, creation of a hydrogen hub what would happen there? I mean, are we, we're exploring hydrogen as a fuel, like for cars, or um, I, I'm, I'm puzzled by, by that. Tell me more about that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's one possibility. You can use hydrogen fuel cells uh, for powering vehicles. Um, you can use hydrogen to replace natural gas. Uh, when you burn hydrogen, it doesn't, it's, it's not carbon. It's a non-carbon-based fuel. Um, there are some other environmental issues with that, but carbon's not one of them. So it's being looked at as a possible replacement fuel. Jet fuel could be used uh, possibly, um, you know, home heating, all, all that sort of stuff. So um, within the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's passed federally, there's $10 billion was allocated in there for uh, research and development of um, uses of hydrogen. And Illinois is situated as such where there's so many natural gas pipelines that come through here. Um, We have nuclear power. We have access to water. We have a lot of the things you would need to um, be a major producer of hydrogen. And we're kind of at the corner of Maine and Maine, to be honest, um, when it comes to that. So a lot of it will be R&D stuff. I mean, there's probably stuff we're not even thinking about, but and it's it burns about two thirds of the BTUs as natural gas, but you can use it to replace natural gas in a lot of situations, and you're not giving off carbon when you combust hydrogen. You can also use it in a hydrogen fuel cell for vehicles, which is um, you know they do that now. So, um, but there's there's money. There's a lot of money out there to look into technology to do that. And uh, Illinois' position to kind of be at the forefront of that. I love the fact that a lot of what you're talking about here isn't just what here's what we need today or tomorrow or actually what we could have used last week, but working with legislators. Mike, uh, the unions here in Illinois are so forward thinking, you know, like this hydrogen hub, that might be something that you know, really comes into its own years from now. But you have to you have to sit back and you have to make those plans if you are going to take advantage of those economies as they develop. Rather than trying to jump in late in the game, Illinois really seems to be leading the way. Is that how you feel? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, our state legislature and the governor's office are 100% behind these sorts of initiatives, um, you know, and to push Illinois forward. I mean, not just hydrogen, electric vehicles, there's a huge push, especially from the governor's office. I mean, they want 
the governor wants Illinois to be the electric vehicle, you know, capital of the, you know, the, of the country, basically, right? So, Why not? It's got to be somebody, right? <laughs> Why yeah, not us? We've got Lipton, we've got Lion Electric. We're looking at some other, uh, the Chrysler plant up in Belvedere's. I'm not converting over to electric vehicles entirely. So we can be the electric vehicle manufacturing hub of the country. I I, I love the fact that that you are all so forward thinking. Um, how much of what we just talked about are you going to try to uh, bring out in the next legislative session um, when Springfield uh, and the lawmakers down there, like when they get together again for the next legislative session, what are some of the things that are at the top of the list that you're going to actually work on right away? Um, I think you're going to see some adjustments to the Reimagining Electric Vehicle Act, adjustments to some of the tax credits in there. Um, we passed this act last year yeah, to uh, attract um, electric vehicle manufacturers to the state. And, you know, in conversations with those folks, there's some tweaks that probably need to be made. To, uh, more, to more incentivize them to come here. I think you're going to see some of that done. Um, and I don't know so much legislatively, but at a department level, you're going to see some movement on these hydrogen hubs. The governor's convened a hydrogen task force and they're working in partnership with uh, some of our surrounding states to um, create a hydrogen partnership. So I think you're going to see a lot of movement on that. I don't know specifically that you'll see some legislation but I think, um, you know, from a department level, you'll see a lot of movement. Those are kind of the two big things we're really working on now. Well, we will look forward to your reports on how all this is progressing through the legislature. Mike Clemens is uh, with an international representative with the uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 176. Mike, thank you so much for being here as part of our Union Strong segment. Love talking to you. Keep us up to date on what's going on in Springfield, okay? Will do. I appreciate it, Joan. Thank you. Very much. We are going to take a break for news, and we're going to be back with much more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. These days before Thanksgiving, in addition to all the politics that you're used to hearing, we're also going to talk about climate, recycling, what we eat, how we can be more responsible as we get into time when we're going to be with family and friends and giving gifts. It's a time to think about how we can do things maybe a little bit differently to um, maybe not have quite the bad impact, maybe even a positive impact on our communities and our planet. I'm joined now by um, Professor Michael Bryson. He's a professor and director of sustainability studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at Roosevelt University in Chicago. Oh, they also have a branch in Schaumburg. I'm sure those of you who uh, study out there know that. And uh, he joins us now to talk about some of these things. Uh, Professor Bryson, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Joan. Great to be on the show. You know, first of all, 
let's start by defining our terms. I'm not always sure that people who say st- sustainability mean the same thing. How do you define sustainability? That's a great question, and you're right. There are multiple definitions of the word, and it's it's widely used and not always precisely understood. When we talk about sustainability at Roosevelt uh, with my students and colleagues as well as the public, uh, we really mean the conservation of resources uh, so that future generations have access to clean air, water, soil, and other uh, essential elements um, so that we have that moving into the future. So it's, it's thinking about future generations, and it is understanding that um, humans are part of the natural world. And so um, it kind of gets, a, gets us away from that environment versus humanity binary uh, by, by pointing out that uh, we're bound up together. So a healthy, natural environment will be a healthy, sustainable environment for for we humans to live in. Well, that sounds great. It also sounds very big picture when you talk about, you know, the environment in general. Somebody like me thinks, well, you know, I'm just one little person. I can't I can't have any impact. I'm just one little person. You know, what what can I do to help with these big issues so let's bring it down to one little person. What can we do every day in our daily lives to to ease this process along? Sure, that's a great question, Joan, and, and a lot of people ask that. And the fact is there's so many different things we can do as individuals, and the important thing is to not be discouraged by thinking that uh, I'm only one of now 8 billion people in the world, so no matter what I do, it doesn't make any difference. While any one individual may not have an obvious impact on something like mitigating climate change, that multiplier effect of doing things that other people observe and then might um, might adopt themselves <laughs> is, is really important. For example... A a short while ago, I was taking advantage of the waning minutes of daylight before our phone (laughs) call, and I raked some leaves in my front yard. And on my block where I live in Joliet, I am in the minority of people who actually use a rake instead of a leaf blower. So, Mm. you know, I'm not trying to, like, paint myself as virtuous. I just, I don't, you know, I prefer to save money by by buying cheaper manual tools, and I have a very small yard. But my raking, uh, which used to be the standard way of of gathering up leaves, doesn't burn any fossil fuel. It's purely purely solar power. Uh, You know, so that's that's something that you don't necessarily think about as a sustainable action, but it's not that much different from riding your bike to the store as opposed to jumping in your car for a for a five minute journey to to mail a letter at the post office mm-hmm. uh, you know reducing our use of fossil fuels, turning off lights, turning off water while we brush our teeth all of these are little common sense things that people know about but but are ways to conserve natural resources you know it's funny that you say that because I'm thinking about my neighborhood and if I have seen anybody out with a rake this fall 
I'd have to say the answer is no. And here's the real kicker. I live in a community where at least gas-powered leaf blowers are supposed to be banned. And yet that's not only do people use leaf blowers, but they all use gas-powered leaf blowers. Right. Well, and and the kicker is when uh, lawn services drive up in, in trucks to deploy large mowers and leaf blowers over what sometimes are ridiculously small properties where you think, well, mm-hmm. it seems like overkill. Um, you know, we're burning... We're burning fuel unnecessarily coming and going, literally, wow. um, not just in the leaf blowing. Well, don't even get me started about the noise pollution, which is... which is. Oh, my God, it's awful. Very... <laughs> no, isn't it? It's like the scourge. Well, I mean, I'm going on a rant about leaf blowers, and, and that's really only one thing. But uh, actually, sustainability scholars, and I can't give you the exact number, but they have estimated the greenhouse gas emissions, the carbon emissions essentially from um, gas-powered lawnmowers and leaf blowers and other contraptions we use to take care of our uh, non-native plant um, dominated golf course-esque suburban and urban yards. And it's a shockingly high amount. I mean, if, if if that was cut in half, we'd go a long way to, toward reducing our overall national greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it, it's, it's not a negligible value, even even from that. It you know it is a lot of times it's the little things because I I now live in a community where I'm very close to a grocery store, I'm very close to the library, I'm very close to the post office, and and that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, for a lot of communities, it's it's just a little too far, particularly when it gets yeah. to be, you know, the cold weather. It seems like it's just a little too far uh, to walk or, you know, like sometimes in the summertime, we'll talk about whether or not we're going to walk to the grocery store. And then I think about, well, what are we going to buy and how heavy is it? <laughs> you know, because if right. I said, you know, if we're buying a bunch of heavy stuff, there's just there's no way. But it really is. You know, the little tiny choices that we make in the moment, you you think that it doesn't have an effect, uh, but it adds up, doesn't it? It does. And and now I'm, you know, I'm inspired to think about the flip side of this idea about our individual actions and by extension, our individual responsibilities to live more sustainably one of the things that we tend to over-focus on in the United States, especially because we're very much an individualistic, self-reliant-oriented country, you know, in terms of our culture, and that's probably increased in recent decades as we've turned inward away from uh, socializing with people outside the home and entertained ourselves with all kinds of technology whether handheld or big screen variety, um, we tend to think, well, it's, it's really individual actions that matter, and we forget about the structural processes that really um, set up the possibility or foreclose the possibility for living more sustainably and behaving more sustainably as a, a city, a state, or a country. In fact, environmental policy, you know, I, I tell my students, we don't need more scientific research. 
we already have plenty of science and technology to generate all of our energy from clean energy sources, to reduce waste dramatically and avoid filling our landfills. What we lack is the political will to do so and the policy and the laws that are enforceable to guide us to doing that. Um, And, you know, the climate change negotiations that just finished up in Egypt are a perfectly good example of that. Um, the, the, The desperate need to have real global and as well as national policy that sets goals for carbon emission reductions that are enforceable. We don't have that yet. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about, but we, we need to take a break. Um, when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Professor Mike Bryson, who is a professor of sustainability at Roosevelt University. We'll be back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm uh, speaking with sustainability professor Mike Bryson from Roosevelt University. All this week, we are going to spend a little bit of time thinking about how we live on this planet and the things that we can do to make a difference. It's so interesting, Mike. Just today, just this morning, I saw a video um the guy who is the leader of uh, the government on Tuvalu, which is um, an island in uh, the Polynesian area, he was uh, he made a, a speech announcing the fact that they were going to start digitizing all of their history, all of their culture, their language, everything that makes you. Uh, a resident of Tuvalu, because by the end of this century, Tuvalu is expected to be literally underwater. The whole island is supposed to just be gone because of ocean level rise. And it just broke my heart. You know, this is this is not theory for these people. This is looking at their culture and the place that they live and knowing that they are facing annihilation. And that was the big announcement, that they're going to try to create a digital record so that future generations will know what it was like to live there and the culture and the history. It was it was just breathtaking to me. Um, are we going to be seeing more of this? Unfortunately, we will, and that's a heartbreaking uh, announcement, to be sure. Um, But unfortunately, it's not surprising because we've actually been hearing this type of thing, uh, the imminent uh, destruction of uh, island nations due to climate change. And it illustrates a couple things. Number one, the places that have contributed least to climate change historically, as well as in the present day, are in general the ones that are going to suffer the most and the soonest. Uh, so there's that kind of touches on something that environmental justice activists refer to as climate justice, uh, which which is really kind of a recognition that there's a lot of climate injustice right now. Wealthy nations like our own are are uh, at at the moment anyway the least affected in general by climate change but have done the most to set it into motion uh 
And that's just fundamentally unfair uh, and unjust. Um, But it also points out the fact that climate change is not a hypothetical future event that is decades, if not centuries, down down the road. It's happening right now. I mean, the, the ice sheet on Greenland is melting in, right now. There's massive melting going on in Antarctica. Um, there are vulnerable, low-lying nations and coastal areas that are already experiencing much worse weather and far more flooding. And by the way, that, that applies, as, as people well know, on the East Coast to Florida and New England and other parts of the United States that that are, are experiencing increasing and more severe storms and floods. I was um, reading yesterday an article about is um, the exodus uh, of retirees from other states that migrate to Florida because they want the weather the prediction is that that is going to slow because the only people who are going to retire to Florida are the ones who have the ability to rebuild once their house gets knocked down or flooded. That the average, you know, uh, from the deaths of Hurricane Ian, there were at least two deaths in the death toll that were attributed to suicide. Men going back to their homes seeing that they were utterly destroyed, knowing that they had no way to rebuild, and they both chose suicide. It's just, we see these things happening, and it's just a drib here and a drib there, and sometimes I think we forget to bring it all together into one picture of what we are doing to the planet. Well, that's a great point, Joni, and you said it uh, both beautifully and tragically. Um, and not to sound flippant, but I actually had to really listen carefully here on the phone in, in my home because uh, you were almost drowned out by my neighbor's leaf blower oh. outside my window. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm not trying to be flip, but, you know, it's just coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's a very nice person, and this kind of brings up something that is just to go back to the personal level. Um. You know, we have to we have to live in communities and neighborhoods and get along with people. And folks have different ways of doing things. And one of the things that I think about a lot um, is how how other people re- react or not to certain things I do uh, around my home outside, for example, like taking care of the yard or planting a garden or putting in native plants that look a little weedy and messy to folks who aren't into that thing and trying to be, you know, one of the things I do on a personal level is try to be a good diplomat, if, if you will, for a little bit more sustainable way of tending one's outdoor spaces and not be preachy or obnoxious about it, but just sort of be lighthearted and, um, you know, if people want to talk, we'll talk. If they don't, that's cool, too. Yeah. Hey, I know that you started a uh, a bachelor's degree, a sustainable studies program, sustainability studies program. Mm-hmm. What do your students learn in, in that kind of uh, program at Roosevelt? Gosh, thanks for asking about that. Uh, 
Uh, I was the co-founder of Sustainability Studies at Roosevelt back in 2010. And while there were other environmental science and related type programs in the Chicago region at the time, we were the first one in the in Chicago to to kind of have a formally designated sustainability undergraduate degree program and one of the very first in Illinois. So that was a really cool thing to be part of. And the neat thing about Roosevelt's program is that we're very much situated in the city, in the loop, in an urban environment, as well as our Schaumburg campus out in the northwest suburbs. And so the urban and suburban environments as places where humans and nature interact, where we have built structures as well as designed but also natural green spaces and all kinds of rivers and streams and lakes and wetlands, it's really a fascinating place to to do environmental work, whether you're a conservationist or a sustainability professional or a student or a writer or an artist, etc. The students in our program very much get a liberal arts uh, tr- uh, perspective on the three E's of sustainability, and I mean the letter E, as in um, environment, economy, and equity. So the three E's of sustainability really point out its interdisciplinary character and the fact that it ties things together from multiple academic disciplines. So uh, whether we're talking, we don't talk about things in isolation. An environmental issue like water pollution is actually closely coupled to economic issues like whether or not people can afford to change the lead service line that Mm -hmm. connects the water main with their house in Cook County. Um, And equity uh, uh, tells us that, gives us a way to to think about how there are structural environmental injustices with access to unpolluted, fresh water resources. And we don't have to look any further than the city of Chicago to see that. Um, Some of the most expensive water bills experienced to Cook County are in neighborhoods of color and or of low income. Mm -hmm. And these also tend to be the neighborhoods that have the most lead service lines <laughs> and huh. the most lead lead contamination in in water as well as in soil. Professor, it has been a delight talking to you. I hope you will come back again. Um, these these issues are are too important to not discuss on a regular basis. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Joan, and I appreciate the invitation. And we'd be happy to come back and talk anytime. Thank you. Professor um, Mike Bryan, um, who is um, Bryson. Did I say Bryan? I'm so sorry. Mike Bryson, professor of sustainability at Roosevelt University. We're going to take a break. We're going to wrap up the day talking about inflation and uh, the financial markets when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have so many questions uh, that we re- keep going back to over and over again. What's going on with the stock market? What's going on with inflation? Is COVID still a factor? 
Well, we decided to ask an expert. Uh, you may have seen his uh, or heard his ads here on WCPT. Peter Ziv represents uh, a Ziv Investment Company. He is the president of Ziv Investment Company. And Peter Ziv joins us now to talk to us and answer some of our questions. Peter, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Joan. Very nice to be on your show. Okay. Um, we, I've heard people say all the time, the stock market is not the economy. But what, but it seems like every time we turn around, it's like, oh, the stock market's doing this. It's doing well. It's doing poorly. So is it or isn't it what we should be paying attention to? Well, it's a proxy for the economy because the economy has many inputs. It has labor. It has businesses functioning within it, both public and private. And to a large degree, uh, the stock market represents the economy because the corporate entities publicly traded are, in fact, a major portion of it. So their success or lack of success is a reflection of how the economy is doing generally. So by, by a particular instance, uh, when COVID first came on the scene in uh, with a fury uh, back in late 2019, the market dropped from 25,000 to 18,000. And by the market, I'm talking about the Dow Jones, which is an index. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as it became clear some two years later, uh, due to the uh, good stewardship of President Biden and science, I might add, uh, that we were, as a country and as a, and as a world, starting to pull out, it was reflected in the rising stock market, which basically rallied from 18,000 back up to mid-20s, and indeed we're at 33,000 now. So it is and it's not, if that's not too convoluted an answer for you. Uh-huh. And, you know, you mentioned COVID there. Is COVID still affecting the economy? Uh, to a large degree, it is, and um, although in a much more muted fashion than it did a year ago or a year and a half ago, one, the commercial real estate market in all major cities, including here in Chicago, is flat on its back, and it is going to be, frankly, years before it comes back, in large part because we've had a, a nationwide and indeed global experience, uh, experiment where people can work from home or work virtually. Uh, and so I happen to be in the Board of Trade, even as we speak, which is a wonderful old Art Deco building in the heart of the Chicago financial community. It's probably 50% occupied, and downtown is you know, showing that level of um, uh, weak tendency, if you will. Um, but by the same, and, and also the supply chain is still kind of messed up in, in the sense that it's, it's hard to find certain, uh, certain particular items. Food, for example, is very expensive. Um, so, yes, I think the COVID is still uh, with us. We're probably going to have to be ever more on guard. The worst, however, in my opinion, Joan, is over. And so now we have to deal with um, the effects of what I'll call easy money. I don't know how de- detailed you and your listeners want to get in terms of, you know, inflation and, and, and what that means, but um, as you wish. Well, uh, you, yes, I do want to talk about inflation We've talked, you know, obviously we're a political station, so we talk often about inflation as um, an issue that's on voters' minds. But, you know, from everything I've read, right now inflation is a problem globally, not just in the United States. Why is that? What are the causes? 
So um, as we are entering into uh, the pandemic, the Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell and uh, prior to that, Janet Yellen, basically made the decision that they wanted, they made the calculation that it was better to maintain a stronger economy, keep growth going, rather than to uh, tamp it down. Um, The stronger economy puts more money into people's pockets. And so interest rates were kept very low, uh, historically at low levels. And so if we go back, say, two, three years ago, three years ago, you could get a mortgage for about 3%. Um, And so with low borrowing costs, people are willing to spend money. They're willing to buy houses and they're willing to buy cars and big ticket items and they're willing to, uh, you know, spend more for credit and and so forth. Um, So if you pump basically trillions of dollars into the economy, after all, the U.S. government prints money, and you make it very easy to borrow, borrow, people are inclined to spend. Uh, eventually, that what we'll call hyper-consumerism uh, pushes up uh, demand, and as demand goes higher, prices go higher, and as prices go higher, inflation goes higher. So it's a weird kind of dance because uh, a, a high level of inflation uh, I don't mean to get too technical here, but a high level of inflation basically reduces purchasing power. Um, so a tank of gas, it, instead of costing 50 bucks, costs $75. A bag of groceries, instead of costing $75, costs $150. So inflation is a corrosive, corrosive event. So what has happened, the only way, virtually the only tool in the Fed's toolbox to reduce inflation. Let me pause for a moment before I get to that. Do you understand <laughs> why uh, high inflation is a corrosive event? Well, it, sure. Because it, people um, can buy less with their dollars. Yeah. Their yeah. You, their you're, unless, unless your salary increases at the same rate as inflation, it makes all the goods and services you buy more expensive. Right. So people on a fixed income are really hurting. Even people not on a fixed income are hurting. So, um, the Fed basically said, okay, inflation is starting to get ahead of us here. By the way, inflation is at the highest level it's been in 40 years in the U.S. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to know back in the early 1980s when we had even more severe inflation uh, that our mortgage rates were trading at 15 16%, which is a shocking number when you consider it. So really the only tool the Fed has is to increase interest rates because higher interest rates means it's much more expensive to borrow money, which means mortgage rates go up and big ticket items become more expensive. So what the Fed is doing is they're trying to find a balance between uh, keeping the economy afloat, not killing it in terms of growth, not sending it into a recession, but by the same token, uh, uh, tamping down inflation. Okay, but, you know, that I understand that mechanism, and that's what happened here in the United States. But inflation is a global problem right now. Um, That may explain what happened here, but how is it happening all over the uh, developed world simultaneously? Like, what's what's pushing inflation in Western Europe? So 
Um, you know, we are a interconnected global economic system, not uniformly, you know, but but to a large degree. Uh, we have the worst war, hot war, on Europe since World War II. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. It's a savage war. Uh, the Russians started it. And as a consequence, uh, the Russians are using energy as a weapon. Uh, they are cutting off gas to Europe. They have sabotaged Nord Stream 1, which is one of the major gas pipelines from Russia to Europe. And they have thereby pushed up global energy prices. They're one of the largest exporters of natural gas and of oil, for that matter. But they're doing this to create suffering. They have also cut off food supplies from Ukraine. Ukraine is effectively the breadbasket of Europe and also to some degree the breadbasket of uh, Africa. So um, because Putin is trying to force his will on the world, uh, specifically on Ukraine, he's, he's using a form of economic terrorism uh, by pushing up oil prices, cutting natural gas, cutting food. So that, because we have an interconnected global economy, pushes up prices, gas prices, for example, and food prices around the world. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're traveling, for example, in England, uh, they, they sell their uh, petrol, as they call it, by the liter. And there are about three liters per gallon, roughly. A gallon of gas in England goes for about $8.50 U.S., um, so it's it's a tremendously corrosive effect. Um, but I'll tell you, Joan, I don't think it's a permanent effect. I'm not as dire. There's a tremendous amount of pessimism in the market. I, I would would ask you whether you've heard a lot of um, stock market people and economists are, that are openly, openly bullish on the market. I, I think there's an awful lot of fear baked into this market right now. The only thing thoughts? that I've read of a positive nature didn't Warren Buffett a week or so ago start buying a bunch of, um, I don't know if it was one company or more companies or buying a bunch of stock? And I thought to myself, you know, of course, if you've got a bunch, if you've got a couple billion sitting around in the market tanks, why wouldn't you get into the market? Because it's always been resilient. Um, but that's about the only thing that I've seen that showed a little faith in the future. So that's a great example. Warren Buffett is one of the uh, one of modern history's all-time great investors, and he is a student of a guy named Ben Graham, Benjamin Graham, who uh, was one of the great masters, kind of as a, a, a true uh, intellect as it relates to uh, stock investing. Um, and Warren Buffett, unlike a lot of uh, other prognosticators, is is has a tremendously strong track record. So he's buying. Uh, Occidental Petroleum, for example, which is a large integrated oil producer. He uh, also has a very large investment. He's a single largest shareholder in Kraft Heinz Foods uh, because his belief is that foodstuffs will command um, uh, higher premium around the globe. And, you know, Warren Buffett often goes where others fear to tread. Uh, in the financial crisis of 2008, when Merrill Lynch uh, basically collapsed and had to be purchased by the Bank of America, Lehman Brothers went completely under. Uh, he was approached by Goldman Sachs for a loan. Goldman Sachs, of all people, had to borrow money, and he gave him a loan. 
So the fact that a Warren Buffett is bullish on the U.S. economy, which he tends to be, uh, I think I think we I'd rather side with his opinion uh, than others. And the other thing I want to point out is that the stock market, Joan, generally does not break in periods of high pessimism and high fear, uh, which is what we have at the moment. Um, it, it tends to break in, in periods of tremendous optimism. So, or another way of putting it is the market climbs a wall of worry. So generally speaking, I'm, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic for 2023 on both the economy and the stock market. Hmm. Um, I'm speaking with uh, Peter Ziv, who is the president of uh, Ziv Inve- Investment Company. We are going to continue our discussion. Coming up next, I want to ask him what he uh, what he thinks about the company that Elon Musk just bought Twitter and whether or not it is uh, a, the, the, the poor fools who gave uh, Elon Musk money must be just in a tizzy right now. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Peter Ziv, who's president of Ziv Investment Company. We're talking about inflation and the stock market. Peter, I have to ask you, what do you think about what is happening with Twitter? I mean, by all accounts, it was not a profitable company before, but certainly it was moving in a positive direction. Now Elon Musk has taken it over. Advertisers have left. Thousands of users have left. There's been a documented rise in hate speech. A lot of the people who work for Twitter are gone um, is that any way to run a company, Peter? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, uh, Elon Musk has gone from sort of a, a, a guy you admired for building SpaceX from scratch and Tesla to someone who's, uh, if not exactly a butt of a joke, uh, really a, a, someone that a number of people are holding to some contempt because his management style is appalling. I mean, this idea of coming in, uh, sharp elbows. Now, Rook, we understand that he spent uh, $45 billion for this company, which, by the way, you're, before the break, you indicated, um, are they ever going to get their money out of that? And in my opinion, the short answer is no way. This is going to go down as an absolute debacle. Uh, he had, you know, he's the richest man on the planet, and you get a certain momentum by behind you, and people don't want, you know, by people, I'm talking about large institutional investing, uh, large institu- institutional banks, which have loaned him something on the order of $13 billion as part of the $44 billion pay package. As you quite rightly point out, it does not make money. It loses money. And it has never made money, to my knowledge, and uh, or except maybe fitfully in the early years under Jack Dorsey. Uh, it also has loaded itself up with debt. The debt service alone on that company is a billion dollars a year. There is not a chance. That he can, in my opinion, this is one man's opinion. There's not a chance he can turn that into a profitable enterprise. And to your point, he has alienated people, you know, in a shocking manner. Not only is his employees, or he basically sort of mocks them, you know, don't don't pretend you're kind. Of, if you're pretending your kind of work, don't show up. And I need a super hardcore ethos. And um, candidly, adding Donald Trump back on the megaphone, I think, is a disaster. But. Um, that's my opinion. What's yours, Joan? Well, I see, you know, I, I have no um, financial or CEO experience. I see him trying to put a, a smiley face on the fact that 
He took something that was cracked and now it is broken to beyond beyond repair. What I don't understand, Peter, is, you know, if he wants he's a you know gazillionaire, if he wants to waste his own money doing this, you know, there's nobody that's going to stop him. But he got people to invest and lend him money. I don't understand how anybody looking at this particular business, which, as you rightfully point out, I don't think has ever made a profit. Elon Musk's erratic behavior, the fact that he tried desperately to get out of the deal. And oh, by the way, Peter, would you mind writing me a check for uh, several million dollars so that I can do this deal? Would you have said yes, Peter? No, absolutely not. And to the large money center banks that have something on the order, as I say, 12 to $13 billion, uh, that I can, I can assure you, so it, it, when debt is at its at, at its normal level, it trades at basically 100, which is basically par par value. I, I guarantee you that debt is trading below par because people see the risk of getting paid off has dropped dramatically. And um, but there is a weird kind of group think that happens, and kind of a FOMO, even among so quote unquote the smartest guys or gals in the room, where they say X number X money center bank. Um, is loaning uh, him $3 billion, and another bank, uh, you know, these are major international banks, uh, loaning $4 million. Well, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I don't want to miss out. So, oh, really? So, yeah, let's, let's, get, let's take another example. So in my opinion, I think this is a case of two things. First, you're absolutely right. It was a piece of hubris on his part to make a bid over Twitter, no less, to say that I want to buy the firm, and and then the uh, the board of directors said, okay, we're open to that. We'll offer you a a, a board seat. You know, you know, nine percent of it. And he said he'll accept it. And then no. And then he tried to weasel out. But once you sign a contract and it goes to Delaware Chancery Court, you're gonna, the chances of you getting out of that contract are very low. But speaking of the FOMO thing. Perhaps we could pivot to what's been going on in the crypto space, like FTX. Are you familiar with that? You know, um, my feeling, my knowledge of crypto is that it's something that doesn't exist. It's all like it's like it's like a fantasy. Crypto uh, doesn't exist and uh, Bitcoin doesn't they don't exist. Uh, That's that's how I look at it, Peter. I have an astute insight into it. Well, let me just tell you, um, your your position has a lot of uh, validity in today's world. I'll, I won't, you know, get too deep in the weeds on this, but uh, the what, the the second largest crypto exchange in the world, actually the third largest, called FTX, uh, run by a guy named Sam uh, Bankman-Fried, at the beginning, or let's say middle of October, had a value of $32 billion, $32 billion. It now has a value of zero. And, um, and it's, it, it is going to go down. The guy who is over, so Sam Bankman-Fried, who's 30 years old, by the way, um, basically it's a, it's a function of, um, frankly, fraudulent dealing. And, and it's a shocking level because a lot of people put their money into it. But I will also point out to you that along the lines of the uh, Elon Musk in the Twitter and a lot of the smartest money in the moon, smartest money in the room put money into it, there were a a gold standard list of private equity firms like Sequoia Fund um, and the Quebec 
uh, teachers fund that put, for me it was Ontario teachers fund, that put serious money behind this. And they've written down their investments to zero, at least most of them. Oh. So, oh my goodness. You know, there's a little bit of that FOMO thing, but I think your instinct <laughs> is correct. If, well, if you don't understand it and it seems like it's smoke and mirrors, it may well be. <laughs> my my ignorance uh, was my strong suit for a rare occasion. Peter, thank you so much for talking to us. Peter Ziv is the president of Ziv Investment Company. Uh, thank you. It is a delight speaking with you. I appreciate okay. you and all of your support of WCPT. Of course, Joan. Thank you kindly. Uh, that's going to do it for me today, driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Could possibly be next. I think it is. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great night. Stay safe, my friends. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.